welcome into the local angle on FanDuel TV. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and with us, as always, John Jastrzemski from New York, New York. JJ, what's going on, man? Brian, it's always a pleasure to see you. I always love when we have the opportunity to collaborate on these local angles, and uh, I don't know how the folks are feeling up in New England, but I can tell you with the state of affairs with our baseball teams in town, <laughs> the football season in 2023 cannot get here soon enough, amigo. Yeah. Can't get here soon enough. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So what we decided to do here is JJ is the resident Dolphins fan, but also, of course, he covers the Jets. I'm here in Boston with the Patriots. So what we wanted to do is sort of an AFC East preview, but a little spin on it. We have some questions here, some burning questions entering the season because this is the best division in the NFL. Like the Patriots come into this thing, the worst team in the division, and they're pretty good for being the worst team in a division. So let's start with this one, JJ. More likely, Mac Jones is better than your guy Tua this year, or Tua is better than Aaron Rodgers. So I love this question. It's fantastic. It's juicy on so many different levels. But for me, Brian, it's got to be that Tua is better than Aaron Rodgers because Whoa. guess what? I'm, I'm going to tell you why. Watch the film last year. <laughs> if you watch the film last year, and we're just look, and, and I understand Aaron Rodgers is the first ballot Hall of Famer, right? Aaron Rodgers is a top, I don't know, 8 to 12 all-time NFL quarterback. But outside of the greatest to ever do it, Tom Brady, who, north of the age of 40, has put up monster, monster seasons. It's, it's just uncharted waters for the quarterback position. So yeah. do I think Rodgers will be revitalized? Yeah, you could, you could sell me on that. But I don't love his offensive line. That's number one. I don't love players who are getting up there in age. And maybe I have some Mets PTSD because of what I just lived through with Justin Verlander, who's been much better as of late, might I add, and Max Scherzer. But, but Brian, look at Tua last year when he was on the field. Let's say, I know the concussions are a big deal, and I know that could be something that clearly derails his season. But we were talking about a guy in early December who was right there with Jalen Hurts and with Patrick Mahomes, statistically speaking, for MVP. Yeah. So, I know Mac Jones is in a new offense. He doesn't have Tyreek Hill. He doesn't have Jalen Waddell. He doesn't have the whiz kid Mike McDaniel. I like Bill O'Brien, but he's no Mike McDaniel <laughs> as far as creative schemes are concerned. Uh, I'm going to say Tua is more likely to have a better statistical year than Rodgers as opposed to Mac Jones having a better statistical year than Tua. And that's not to say that Mac won't be better this year. I, I just look at that offense for the Miami Dolphins. I think the sky's the limit, dude. Okay, I think the best part of your argument is the 40-year-old thing, right? Because anytime you want to praise Tom Brady, I'm all for it. And Brady did go into Rodgers' house in that postseason in 2020 and beat him. So I certainly understand where you're coming from with that. The reason I tend to say Mac is going to be better than Tua is, and you make a lot of good points too, especially McDaniel really helped him last season. And I want to get to part of that, right? So if you go back to 2021, Mac more yards per game than Tua and a better passer rating. Now, Tua had an incredible season. He was... Third in terms of passer rating behind Purdy and Mahomes. He was first in yards per attempt. He was ridiculous. But the injuries started to pile up, right? And after December, six touchdowns, five interceptions, completed 52.6% of his passes. So he does have all these weapons, but what are the odds, first of all, he stays healthy? And then secondarily, if you look at Mac Jones, his rookie season was promising, right? And now, and I know you 
are saying that Bill O'Brien's not as good as Mike McDaniel. But you know what Bill O'Brien isn't? Matt Patricia. Like, he's actually a competent offensive play caller, right? So if you look at it, he's going to play to his strengths. We see the quick passing game, the RPOs. And with Mac Jones, you go back to his collegiate season or his last collegiate season at Alabama, 19% of his passes came via RPOs. That was 19%. JJ, he was 73 of 78, 10 touchdowns, no picks, okay? Last season, Tua, 71 attempts out of RPOs. Remember, they came from a very similar offensive scheme at Alabama. So Mike McDaniel, to your point about the whiz kid, he played up to that with Tua. 71 attempts out of RPOs was the fifth most in the NFL. You know how many Mac had? 19. This is something he did great at the collegiate level, 19 attempts. And then if you look at the play-action game, Tua's percentage of dropbacks out of play-action, 43.1%. Second highest rate in the entire NFL. Mac Jones with Matt Patricia, 16.7%, 39th out of 41 qualifiers, so a 26.4% difference. So Mac was hurt so bad by his offensive coordinator last year. And look, he had moments last season, JJ, that as Patriots fans, they were aggravating, right, where he's turning the football over, he's complaining to the sidelines and all that. But I just believe having a competent coach playing to your actual strengths, we saw what Mike McDaniel did for Tua. And I believe Tua is the more talented quarterback than Mac, but I could also see Aaron Rodgers. And I know you make the point about 40, but Rodgers sort of seems like he's all in with this Jets organization. I mean, you're there. He's taken pay cuts. I mean, we've never heard Rodgers do anything along those lines. And he has a chance to do something that even Tom Brady never did, which is win an MVP with two different NFL franchises. I think he's going to be highly motivated in New York. I'm betting on or I'm betting against the health of Tua and I'm betting on Bill O'Brien that Max sort of narrows that gap. Because if we went into last year and we had this conversation, actually, you said Tua would be better than Mac. You were right on that. But I don't think from a talent perspective, the difference is so drastic. So I'm going to go with Mac is passing Tua or better than Tua is more likely than Tua is better than Aaron Rodgers. Well, I think you're going against the health of Tua more than anything. Yeah. And even at the end of the year, I mean, let's be fair about those end-of-season numbers. Those interceptions piled up in that Green Bay game when the guy was basically concussed yeah. in the second half of the game. It's a good so point. I, I, I do have to throw a little asterisk on a couple of those numbers because I think he threw <laughs> yeah. either two or three <laughs> interceptions that I was saying I felt terrible about this, Brian, because I'm like, Tua stole Christmas. I'm miserable. <laughs> I'm in a rotten mood. And then the following day, I find out he's playing with a concussion. And it made me kind of feel like crap in the moment for just destroying the poor guy. And look, I'm going to credit a team like the Chargers that made some adjustments with that Miami offense. But again, here's my biggest problem for the Patriots offensively. I do think Bill O'Brien is going to provide leadership and a sense of scheme and something that was clearly lacking for New England a year ago. Where are the weapons, though, dude? I'm sorry. I I hear... I think Ben Volan, who covers the Pats, I saw this on Twitter yesterday, so this is what I get for going on Twitter. He's basically raving about old man Devontae Parker looking like the Patriots' best offensive weapon. I'm like, uh, what? Devontae wheelchair Parker? Get him a walker out there (laughs) if you try to keep that guy on the field, for goodness sakes. And look, New England, defensively, I think he's going to be very good. Belichick always is going to go and win a couple of games. Juju Smith-Schuster, Mike Isicki, like, all right, they're a little bit better, but I'm seeing these teams in the AFC, you got guys that are wow, you know what I mean, dude? Like, where is the wow playmaker 
for the New England Patriots. Yeah. And that's a problem for the quarterback not having It's that. certainly a fair point, and I think that that guy clearly for the Patriots is going to have to be Juju, right? And what we've seen from Bill O'Brien, he likes to really, really feature his best players, and Juju Smith-Schuster by default is the Patriots' best offensive weapon. And I do think from this perspective, he's something that Mac has never had where they've never replaced Edelman. Like Jacoby Myers was not that type of player where you get open in short areas. Juju did that, not to mention Juju on third down, and I get all the sort of elements of, well, he's playing with Pat Mahomes. He had more yak yards than anybody in the NFL on third down last year. So Juju, I think, will provide at least some stability to that offense. But you're right. They don't have the firepower that some of these other teams have. That's why they're going to have to rely on heavy play action and run the football with Ramondre Stevenson. So you mentioned the defenses. So let's get to this. Which team is going to have the best defense in terms of points per game in the division? There's a lot of good defenses, JJ. This defense, this conference or i should say division is loaded with defenses yeah it sure is um i'm gonna go with the jets and i'm gonna go with the jets because i think they have ascending talents on their defense i mean you could make the argument defensively that sauce Gardner is the best defensive player in the division think about that for a minute yeah it's crazy to say because he's only coming off of one year but what he was able to do with corner was eye-popping. Then you throw in Quinnen Williams and the sort of year he had at defensive and defensive tackle. The Jets have a lot of different guys they could shuffle in, in and out. I mean, here's the problem with this take, Brian. I could make an argument for the Patriots. Yeah. If they have the answers, you know, in certain spots and they shore up that second corner spot, easily could make that argument. I could make the argument for the Miami Dolphins with Vic Fangio coming in and the sort of impact that he has as a defensive coordinator where Miami, I, I think they were in the 20s last year from a defensive ranking with all the talent on that Miami defense. That's completely unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. I would have, Brian, honestly, I would have answered this question with the Dolphins before the Jalen Ramsey injury. Now with the, and I still think Miami's okay at corner and they'll be able to survive that over the first couple of months. But I am just, Super impressed with what the Jets have. From Sauce Gardner to Quinton Williams to DJ Reed, who had a fantastic year. Ulbricht's scheme, I think, is fantastic. I'm going to say it's Robert. And, and it better be the Jets because the Jets are going to need that defense, I think, to be a top-flight, top-level defense if they're going to go and be a playoff team this year. I'm going to say it's Gang Green. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I'd like to disagree and say the Patriots, but you make a great point about Sauce Gardner, and you mentioned the Dolphins last year. They were 24th in points per game. The Bills were second. Mark my words, though, on this, Brian. Yeah. They, will be be- they will be in the top 15 in defense next year with fans. Oh, I agree There's with you. not a doubt my I agree with you, even with Ramsey being out for a while, because basically what the Dolphins were trying to do is they were running the Brian Flores scheme after Flores left. They're blitzing all the time, and the problem was they weren't in the top 10 as it pertains to sacks. So they weren't getting to the quarterback, yet they were blitzing all the time, which obviously can certainly hurt you. But I look at the Jets, one of the other things is you mentioned that Sauce Gardner arguably one of the best corners, if not the best corner in the NFL. And the other thing you look at it, the Jets' defense was really hurt by their offense. They were 30th in where their opponents started drives, right? (laughs) And their offense only scored on 29.9% of their drives. That was 27th in the NFL. And the offense averaged two minutes and 31 seconds per drive. Only the Texans were worse. So this offense that the Jets are going to have this upcoming season, it's not just going to be competent. It should be pretty good with Aaron Rodgers, where you would expect it to be hovering around the top 10. And that's going to have a ripple effect on the defense. I'm with you. I think it's the Jets. I think the Patriots are second. And then I think it's the Bills and the Dolphins. But all these are really good units. All right. A lot more to get to. 
So we'll take a break, JJ. We'll come back. We'll get into some other burning questions here on the local angle as it pertains to this AFC East. Welcome back into the local angle. Brian Barrett from Off the Pike. John Jastrzemski, JJ from New York, New York. As we continue to run through the AFC East, our burning questions. How about this one, JJ? This is juicy. Which team will have the most drama? Wow. I mean, you could make a compelling case that all of these teams may have their fair share of drama if you look at concussions potentially being a factor for Tua and the Miami Dolphins. The Buffalo Bills, who have had a window to try to win a championship over the last couple of years, and is something that we're trying to figure out as far as Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen is concerned. So I got to have that circled. Uh, the Patriots, I guess it's the question of if things go south, who gets more of the blame? Is it Mac Jones? Is it the greatest coach of all time and Bill Belichick? But none of those choices for me. I'm in New York, Brian. This is an obvious one. Aaron Rodgers is in a new city. Aaron Rodgers is dealing with the pressure cooker that is the New York media. He's passed every test so far with flying colors, might I add. Like, he's been the toast of New York in the offseason, in the OTAs, in the training camp. But when you throw Rodgers' presence in, a must-win year for Robert Sala, dude, it's got to be the Jets. Has to be the Jets. And it's the Jets. Come on, it's the Jets. Yeah, it's the Jets to me too. Because, I mean, you look at it as well. The first five games, you're Bills in the opener. Then you're at Dallas. You're home for the Patriots. You're home for the Chiefs. You're at Denver. And I know Denver stunk with Russell Wilson, but we'll see what happens with Sean Payton. Then you're home for Philly. You could easily be, after your first six games, two and four. And remember, the big issue for that team last year, the offensive line, Pass block grade, 29th via Pro Football Focus. ESPN's metric, they were 21st. You're there, JJ. You know what's going on. The Dwayne Brown situation, he's old. Makai Becton trying to get back to playing in the NFL. If this thing goes south in a hurry, there's going to be a lot of questions about Aaron Rodgers. And plus, you also look at the fact that you have this situation with Hard Knocks. Who knows what happens after Hard Knocks? I'm very entertained by the Hard Knocks product, but that always, you never know if that's going to work out for the organization. And then the other thing I would say is Brady got off to a slow start in Tampa. Remember, Brady's on Thursday night football where he's holding up the fingers. He doesn't know how many downs there are. And after they had that gruesome Thursday night loss, it became the Tom Brady offense again, right? And I know that Rodgers has his guy there as it pertains to Nathaniel Hackett, but that could be an issue. Now, if I was going to go with a second, like a runner-up, it's the Patriots. Because I'm really wondering this upcoming season— with Robert Kraft, like, he's been taking some shots at Bill Belichick. Like, if Mac Jones looks good and the Patriots aren't getting the results, right? I think that's the most interesting dynamic. If the Patriots, because we could see a scenario where the Patriots look competent offensively. They look competent defensively. But they're playing such a difficult schedule. Robert Kraft, we know, wants to get back into the playoffs. So if he doesn't get into the postseason, it doesn't look like they're getting there midseason— then I wonder if you start to hear some rumblings about the future of the head coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, which brings us into our next question, JJ. Who is the most likely to make a coaching change after the season? I think it has to be the Jets from this standpoint. And I'm going to tell you why. If they don't make the playoffs, they're going to need a fall guy. Guaranteed, no questions asked, they will need a fall guy. It's crazy. I would argue the team least likely to make a coaching change would probably be the Miami Dolphins. 
Isn't that crazy to say? Yeah. Because they've made 10 zillion coaching changes over the last 20 years, but I think they're very comfortable and happy with Mike McDaniel as their coach. Listen, Buffalo's an interesting one, though, because if Buffalo, let's say, goes 9-8 and eight this year and they miss the playoffs or they lose in the first or second round, there's an argument to be made that maybe they need to spice it up and that maybe Sean McDermott is not the guy necessarily to go and take them over the top. So for me, and, and I just can't envision the Patriots ever making a coaching change unless it's on Bill Belichick's terms and Robert. I, like you're telling me that Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft are going to have a falling out and that Bill's going to be out. Like I, just, I, I get it, Brian. It's, it's Bill Belichick. It's the New England Patriots. I just can't imagine that we're living in that world. So for me, I would go Robert Salas, Sean McDermott, one and two. Those would be my choices. Yeah, and the other thing as it pertains to the Patriots when we look at the situation is, okay, so if Robert Kraft, and look, I think he likes the perception that he's putting pressure on Bill rather than actually putting real pressure on Bill, right? I just think he likes it to be out there that he's upset. He wants to make it to the playoffs because obviously all the fans rally around that, right? Where it's like, we want to get back into the playoffs. Yeah, everybody wants to get back into the playoffs, right? He's at the party with the... 76ers owner and with Ruben where Ruben the guy from Fanatics is essentially saying he wants ring number seven right Kraft wants that stuff out there but here's the thing if Kraft was ever going to move on from Bill think about what that does to his legacy it actually makes the Brady decision look even worse right because yes, he chose correct. Bill whether or not he doesn't want to admit it right he never wants to admit it this is Bill's decision this is Tom's decision like when things go poorly for the Patriots he doesn't want it to be out there that he could have stopped it he's the owner of the team he could have said hey Tom you're signing here long term I'm making sure I give you the Drew Brees deal you want Bill if you don't want this then you know what I'm moving on from you I'm sticking with the quarterback you're out and Josh McDaniels is the next head coach of the, the franchise right so right. if he had done that or now that he hasn't done that and Tom already won his Super Bowl right Tom got the last laugh with that situation well then it looks like the Tom decision's even worse because a couple of years later you're moving on from Bill Belichick so I'm with you I think it's the Jets because just because of the schedule they play it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to get into the postseason than what we saw with Tom Brady his first year in Tampa so if they don't make it obviously Sal is going to be the guy that they blame you're not moving on from the quarterback Aaron Rodgers after what we've seen the past couple of years or the past two quarterbacks they've drafted and Zach Wilson and Sam Darnold. But I'm with you on the Bills. That could be interesting just because, hey, man, they've been knocking at the door and it feels like the past couple of years they've been taking steps back, right, where they lose in the playoffs earlier this season, right? So I do wonder, and Josh Allen was bad in that playoff game against Cincinnati. And I know there was a lot of drama going on with that organization in terms of they had to deal with the off the field stuff in terms of the injury situation with Tamar Hamlin. Obviously, that was a really scary thing they had to deal with. But also the drama in the offseason with Stephon Diggs. So they may feel like, hey, we need a new voice to sort of get us over the hump. And we have seen this before with teams that are close. You look at, say, the Denver Broncos, where they had John Fox, and they were close. They made it to the Super Bowl, and they said, you know what? Enough's enough. They move on to Gary Kubiak. They win the Super Bowl. So maybe that happens, even though they really did set the foundation there with Sean McDermott. Which brings us to the Bills that ever since Tom Brady has left the division, JJ, they've taken over. I mean, this, this is their division. They were 6-0 in 2020. The following season, they were 5-1. and And this past season, they were 4-2. and So, does the trend continue? Do the Bills actually lose three games in the division this year? So, I guess the trend would say yes. I'm going to argue no, though. I'm going to say that Buffalo, who I still think is... 
They're the team to beat, Brian, until somebody knocks them off, right? Like, I understand there's a case to be made for Miami to go and win this division. Sure. There's a case to be made for the Jets to go and win this division. Um, I think there's a case for New England to be a playoff team. I don't know if there's a case for New England to go and win the division. That would be a stunner as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I'm going to say that they go and sweep one of those three teams. They've had a lot of success against New England over the last couple of years. Um, don't remind they've me. They've had success... Uh, and listen, they have with Miami. It was a miracle. My, Miami actually played them the best. They have played Buffalo in about 10 years, even though they went one and two in the particular matchups and should have gone two and one. Actually, they should have gone three and oh, as far as I'm concerned. But I, I'm going to say Buffalo, because of their pedigree in the division, Brian, I'm going to say they go four and two again. I, I said four and two as well. And the reason I said that, JJ, it's a little different than your answer. It's just because if you look at how their schedule matches up, their first game in the Aaron Rodgers era is against the, or I should say the Bills, Aaron Rodgers' first game is against the Bills. So I thought that, okay, looking at this when I sort of came up with this idea for them going three and three, I thought to myself, they're going to split with all three teams, right? Like the Patriots are somehow going to win one off them. The Dolphins will win one and the Jets will win one. But now the fact that, the Jets open up with the Bills. I actually think the Bills are going to sweep them in sort of the season series. So that's how they get to four and two. If this game was a little bit later. I was going to say, those are two right there. Yeah. There you go. Those are two right there. If this game was just a little bit later on in the season, I think the Bills actually dropped to three and three because I don't think they're as good as they've been in previous seasons. All right. So how about this, JJ? Let's get to a, a couple of futures here. So from our friends at FanDuel, of course, as we're on FanDuel TV right now, MVP picks in the division. Okay. This is for obviously the regular season MVP, but guys in the division. So Allen's at plus 700, second shortest to Mahomes. Rodgers is at plus 1,600, and two is at plus 1,600. Who do you like there from a value perspective? Well, it has to be the quarterbacks, right? Because it has turned into a quarterback award. Quarterbacks win the MVP every year. I answered a question earlier. What's more likely to happen? Tua has a better year than Aaron Rodgers. Mac Jones has a better year than Tua. I feel like Got to be pot committed on this one, Brian. Listen, <laughs> he was... Now, asking Tua to go and be the MVP and play the entire season is a monumental risk. I understand that. I think that's why the number is what it is. But for a good chunk of last year, Brian, he was right there. He was right there going into early December. And there's a case to be made that Aaron Rodgers is the toast of New York City and that the Jets are winning games and that they overcome that slow start. There's value with both of those quarterbacks, but I'm going with the one who, to me, has more upward trajectory at this point in his career. I'm going with Tua. Yeah, it's a fair point. I'm going with Rodgers because you said the narrative, right? Because think about it. This can be a narrative award at times. Usually it's either somebody that comes out of nowhere, like 2019 Lamar Jackson. Not that he came out of nowhere. We knew he had a chance to be a great player, but he sets all these records. He's incredibly entertaining and all that. Cam Newton going back to 2015 completely takes over the league, right? But the narrative of Aaron Rodgers where he's basically won the offseason, right? Where he goes from the Packers to the Jets. He's doing all the stuff in New York. I just think that Rodgers is going to be highly motivated and if the Jets do make it into the playoffs, who gets the credit? It's not Robert Sala. It's not Nathaniel Hackett. No, it will be the quarterback. Right. It's not even, and, and he will yeah. be the toast of the town if that's the case. That is true. Yeah, it's not even Sauce Gardner. So from my perspective, Rodgers is going to be the guy that has a chance to do it. And I actually like the number for both of them at plus 1,600. Like Allen plus 700, it's really not worth it from there's my no thought value. on that. Yeah, there's no, no value. value there. And one thing I think for Rodgers or Tua to have a chance to win the award, 
Miami or the Jets got to win their division, and they probably got to be the one of the two seed in the AFC. That's probably what needs to happen. I'm with you. All right, JJ. Hey, great stuff, man. A lot more coming up here on The Local Angle. You'll hear from the guys from the Philly Special, and of course, you'll hear from Jason Goff from the Full Go in Chicago. I'm sure he's getting ready for NFL season as well, because things are not good there with their baseball teams either. They're just fighting. All right, y'all, you know what time it is. This is The Local Angle. Shout out to all of our good people here at FanDuel TV, of course. This is The Full Go. We are here for you every Sunday, every Tuesday, and every Thursday, unless there's an emergency pod that needs to be dropped or there's a White Sox issue, which means that you should just be here every day because there's a White Sox issue every single day. Um, Hey, y'all, I want to get off the White Sox ride. I know that at the around the all-star break, I said this, but with every passing day, there is a new White Sox drama story or revelation. And in the last couple of days, since we've talked, the Tim Anderson suspension has come down. He got six games. Jose Ramirez got three and boy, does it suck for the guy who, who put you down to get three less games than you got. Um, Pedro Gafol got his one-game suspension where he he said it was quite valuable. And, and by the way, hey, PDG could be a nice guy. He seems like a nice enough dude. Hey, man, um, stick to manager speak for a little bit. Just ride this thing on out because every time PDG opens his mouth, it seems like something is being said where you're like, hey, but that's not supposed to happen, right? Like Pedro Gafol had to answer questions about leadership in the clubhouse because since the last time we've talked, you know, the, the, the Keenan Middleton piece dropped. Jesse Rogers of ESPN 1000 and ESPN Chicago uh, found out that the culture issues are rampant and pitcher fielding practices being missed and meetings being missed and no rules being applied and all the stuff that we heard while Tony La Russa was here didn't really change once Pedro Gafol got here. And we talked about it here on this pod that the thing is rotten to the core. And if it's rotten to the core, that means you got to carve out whatever rotten pieces there are so that whatever fruit that you have can be saved and also cherished for the long run. The fruit that you have is Luis Robert, is Andrew Vaughn, some of these, you know, Dylan Cease, who did not have the, the stellar you know, backup performance to what was second Cy Young ranking, I believe. Yeah, he's finished second in this AL Cy Young voting last year. Hasn't had that season this year. Michael Kopech. So, by the way, Michael Kopech and Dylan Cease are the only two players that are assured starting spots when you go into next year. So the next few weeks is going to be us as White Sox fans watching young pitchers figure out if they can be a part of a rotation, which is always fun in the baseball season. This team is a 95 loss team in the making. So now's the time to clear the decks. Now's the time for anybody who was anybody who was answering questions about what this team was going to be and how they were going to perform and pretty much telling White Sox fans to shut up and stay in their place. Now's the time for those people to find a microphone, to find a camera and state their case. Rick Hahn has done it. Okay. Addressing kind of the, the, the thoughts of one Keenan Middleton. Pedro Grafol has done it. I want to hear from Kenny Williams, too. I want to hear from everyone. Paul Sullivan tried to stop Jerry Reinsdorf at Guaranteed Rate Field. 
Didn't want to talk to him. Said, no, don't have a second for you and kept it moving. This ship is sinking. It has now become the laughing stock, not only of baseball, but in sports. The Tim Anderson situation is dire to say the least because Tim Anderson has not talked to the media yet. He will not talk to the media until his appeal is uh, adjudicated. I had a chance to watch Mookie Betts sit on a couch and talk to, uh, I forget who he was talking to. It's another baseball player. You know, they're all anonymous out there outside the brothers. Mookie Betts is sitting on a couch and he says to uh, the, the other baseball player who I had no idea who he was. He says, Hey man, my man got got Tim Anderson got got that's his guy. But what was, what was more astounding to both guys on the couch was there was nothing else that happened. <laughs> No Chicago White Sox found it in his heart to say, all right, I'm going to mix it up with this guy. You can't just be knocking out our team leader and our shortstop and in the face of black baseball and in the, in the face of the future of this franchise. Nothing happened. And then we come to find out that 670, the score right here in the city of Chicago, comes about with a report that Yasmani Grandal and Tim Anderson had their own um shall we say, interaction in the clubhouse where Yasmani Grandal slapped Tim Anderson. Now, this is the report of 670 The Score. Shane Reardon in that afternoon show. Shout out to uh, Danny Parkins and Matt Spiegel, who have both been on this pod. If these things are true, harking back, I don't know, 40, 30, 20 episodes, whenever we've talked about Tim Anderson and the Chicago White Sox, and Tim Anderson specifically, I've talked about how lonely a place it is For brothers in Major League Baseball, you look at a clubhouse now where the leadership has gone to the to the birds, so to speak. I mean, let's let's face it. Who is the real leader on this team? If the pitchers are the leaders on your team, then you're fucked because guess what? Pitchers pitch once every five days. So when a guy isn't pitching, he doesn't have really have a voice on the team. Jose Abreu goes to the Houston Astros and. Lo and behold, they really don't need him. But Jose Abreu seemed like the linchpin for a long time. And it all makes sense because look how Jose Abreu exited his White Sox career at the end of last season. The man did not even want a curtain call. The last day of the season, he did not want to be on the field with them. He said, no, thank you. If y'all going to get me out of here, let's make it a clean break. I said goodbye yesterday when y'all didn't know it was time for me to say goodbye. It's been tough to take in. And for any Chicago White Sox fan out there that isn't completely apathetic, watching the rest of these games is torture. Because you've wasted the Luis Roberts season, the Andrew Vaughn season, the reckoning, the becoming, the, 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 the coming of age story that Andrew Vaughn was supposed to be really didn't happen. Yasmani Grandal now is looking like some of the worst money this franchise has ever spent. I'd be surprised if Yasmani Grandal is in a White Sox uniform after next year. He's got to address the media for these reports. He's either got to turn around something that he did or just flat out lie and say, I didn't do it and hope that he doesn't catch up to him for the next 30 some odd games. Meanwhile, you've got thoughts or talks, I should say, of Eloy Jimenez not working hard. And let's face it, who as a White Sox fan, let's let's be real, y'all. We've been kind of talking around this Eloy Jimenez thing for the last few years with the soft tissue issues and, you know, the, the, the constant muscle pulls and, you know, never really looking like he's in the greatest of shape. We just thought, hey, if he hits home runs, screw it. <laughs> you you can you can miss 30, you know, 25 games, 40 games, 50 games a year. But guess what? 
He hadn't hit the requisite amount of home runs because he hadn't been out there. And now that Keenan Middleton is gone, and now that a lot of things are pouring out of that clubhouse from guys who aren't there anymore, it's very apparent that this thing has been shipwrecked for a while now. We were just looking at the shiny sails, right? The awesome mast, right? We were looking at how big the boat was. There's been holes in this thing from Jump Street. And when we talk about culture, which I think is an often overused word, winning defines culture. But losing defines it as well. And how you lose defines it. This Sox team hasn't seemed like a team that's been pulling at the same end of the rope for a few years now. You got you got pitchers who have been throwing subliminals at position players for the last year and a half. Go back and read all of these quotes that we've been reading from Lance Lynn and Liam Hendricks and all. Uh, name, name the, the name whatever pitcher you want to name. This has been a divided clubhouse and a divided dugout seemingly now for a couple of years. They were just talented enough to play over it. And when the talent goes away and when the leadership goes away and then when the respect of a manager goes away, what else do you have? You have a floundering baseball team that can never quite flip that switch because that's all we were waiting for, right? Oh, don't worry. White Sox, they just need two good weeks of baseball. We've been saying that for two and a half years. They just need a month. Get on a roll. Oh, wait a minute. Is this Yankee series the series that's going to turn it around? Oh, yeah. wait a minute. You saw what they did to they saw what they did to the Rays. They just been winning off of talent solely for the last couple of years. And now that the talent has taken a dip, Tim Anderson has turned into one of the worst major league baseball players with the requisite amount of plate attempts or plate appearances, I should say, this year. You got the fight. Now you've got all the the, the the ensuing nonsense. And then you've got Rick Hahn addressing the media. Like, I don't know about y'all, but this is not how I plan to spend my summer at all. Meanwhile, the Chicago Cubs have won 17 of the last 25 games. Baseball magic is happening on the north side. David Ross is now looking like he should be extended. Like, all the things that any – I'm not even that White Sox fan. I've never been that White Sox fan. I've never been the dude who looks at the Cubs and goes, na-na-na-boo-boo, or goes, damn, I hate you guys because you're the Cubs. This city ain't won enough. So when I was coming up as a young baseball fan, I looked at a loser on the south side, I looked at a loser on the north side and said, I hope one of you wins before I die. And I'm still in that camp. Because I am so happy for all my Cubs fans' friends. Like, you got guys like Mike Taupman hitting game-winning home runs. You know, you got Cody Bellinger finding his swag, forcing a team to keep him. You got Marcus Stroman reinventing himself now with his third Major League franchise. Like, you got a lot of Dansby Swanson. I mean, the, the plays that are being made on the infield is everything that Jed Hoyer said they would be in terms of defense and run prevention. You've got a real map and a real blueprint. Meanwhile, on the south side, you got players getting knocked out, players talking out of turn. First of all, the fact that Keenan Middleton felt comfortable enough to say these things. I, I learned this very early in the business. Call the players that are just traded, and you'll find out everything you need to know if you need to know it. Keenan Middleton couldn't wait for that phone to ring so he could tell everybody about the bullshit he endured in his time with the Chicago White Sox. Sox fans, we got to endure this throughout the rest of this summer. 
We'll be covering this right here on the full go. It seems like the ride is not going to stop in terms of the clown car that has been Chicago White Sox baseball for this entire summer. I hope Tim Anderson speaks very soon. We'll be covering it right here on the full go. I hope Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams speak at the end of this season so we can figure out what the direction um, is going to be with this franchise. It sucks. It's a bad sport to watch a team flounder because it happens every single day, and it's the soundtrack for your summer. Speaking of the soundtrack for your summer, you can come on in. This is the full go. We do this Sunday. We do this Tuesday. We do this Thursday. And this has been The Local Angle right here on FanDuel TV. Welcome to the Ringers Philly Special. I'm Shiel Kapadia with ace producer Cliff Augustine. And today, thrilled to bring on my friend, Zach Berman from The Athletic, from Birds with Friends. ZB, you look like a man who is, what do you say, uh, ready to attack the next three days of training camp with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Isn't, isn't that your line, right? Well, that's Jim Harbaugh's line. And I actually <laughs> think uh, it was Jim Harbaugh's father's line. Uh, but I, I like the spirit behind it, so I've tried to use it, yes. There you go. We already have a, a shout-out to – so you know it's ZB's on when you already have a shout-out to Jim Harbaugh's father, and we've been on for like 30 seconds here. All right, let's get to the news, ZB. Uh, Eagles signed two off-ball linebackers, Miles Jack and Zach Cunningham. They release 2020 third-round pick Davion Taylor. So the linebacker room, at least the top of it right now, looks like N'Kobe Dean – Miles Jack, Zach Cunningham, Nicholas Morrow, maybe throw Christian Ellis in there. I want to get to the specific players in a moment. But the first big question here is, why do you think they made this move now? What does it say about the progress or lack thereof of a guy like N'Kobe Dean or how they feel about a guy like Nicholas Morrow? Because this kind of caught me off guard that you signed two guys like this the first, the first week of August here. It did not catch me off guard. Uh, in that I expected them to address linebacker. Linebacker was a concern this summer. Even to anyone watching, you could see this is the area of the the team that that needed reinforcements. And, you know, there's an expression in our business, the time to build a source is before you need one. Well, Mm. in in football, the the time to fix a problem is before it becomes one. Because if, if you're trying to fix a problem in October or November, it's much harder to do. I'm not saying Miles Jack or Zach Cunningham fix the issue, but it certainly gives them experienced players better options. Uh, there is some more name appeal here, maybe than what the production might be this season. But the reality is, these are guys who have significant starting experience. They might be old in terms of miles. They're not old in terms of age. And the Eagles really didn't have many options. The part of the question you asked there was about N'Kobe Dean and what this says about him. I I actually take the Eagles at their word that this doesn't indicate uh, concern about N'Kobe Dean. Now, N'Kobe Dean's hurt right now. He has an ankle injury, so he needs to get on the field. Uh, the, that's a big part of it. But but I, I do think the Eagles are invested in making in, in, in having N'Kobe Dean as their top linebacker. The thing is you you need more than one. And this is the way the Eagles approach the position. They're not going to to invest significant money. They're not going to invest significant draft resources. 
They're going to take these lottery ticket type players and they just did it sooner than doing it at cutdown day or after the third preseason game. If they would have made these moves uh, right after that compensatory pick, uh, you know, period ended, then you'd be like, okay, that makes sense. Get, you know, like you said, throw a bunch of darts. Just the fact that it may, maybe just that it happened on the same day. It happened after Nicobe Dean suffers a little bit of an injury that doesn't seem too serious, right? Nick Sirianni sort of indicated that he'll be back sometime soon. Is that right? Yes, I I asked Nick about that on Sunday night, and and he said they're expecting him. They don't want to put a timetable on it. They're expecting they're not expecting it to be long. That said, an ankle injury is the type of injury that for a linebacker in particular, any position, but a, a position where you're running, you're always mindful of how that ankle heals. So with Nicobe Dean. I kind of go back and forth here. I'm with you that he's going to get every opportunity to prove himself. We know that that it's in their best interest for him to just, if he's a competent off ball linebacker who stays healthy and plays at like an okay level, I think that's, you know, that's a win. That, that's really good, especially uh, this season. At the same time, I am kind of looking at the history a little bit and the fact that he slips to 83 in the draft. Eagles take Cam Jurgens over him. In the second round, he can't get on the field as a rookie, even though Kaiser White isn't exactly, you know, lighting the world on fire uh, in the second half of the season. And now a team that, like you mentioned, they take these dart throws at linebacker. But, you know, at this time uh, of the summer takes two dart throws when the Dean has a little bit of an ankle injury. And when you've seen these guys now for what, seven practices in the summer that at least makes sort of the antennae. Is that right? That's, that's right. The antennae go up uh, a little bit that I'm not saying they're this, this move is because they're out on Nicobe Dean, but maybe they just feel like we need to maybe cover ourselves a little more than maybe we thought two weeks ago. Am I going too far or had he kind of sort out um, that theory that I just laid out? I don't totally sell it, but okay. it's, it's more, when Dean's not on the field, it's very obvious they don't have, I mean, much less competition. They don't really have adequate players to put in there. Uh, I don't think Nicholas Moro's played particularly well this summer at all. Christian Ellis has, has some potential theoretically here, and he's made some plays, but you don't want to go into the season relying on Christian Ellis to be a big-time player for you. And, you know, Sean Bradley is, is fine as a special teams player. He if if they wanted him as a linebacker, he would have been a linebacker the past two seasons or past three seasons. So the way I see it, uh, Dean, oh, I don't want to say by default, but he, he hasn't done anything to, to lose his job yet. I don't think he played poorly. It was a very small sample size. And I think if, if you're not making a big investment in picks and you're not making a, a big investment in price, then really what you're doing is you're selling the same opportunity to both these guys. And you're saying, you're saying one or both of you can play. Here's a chance. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think this says as much about Dean as it does about Morrow and the rest of the linebacker group. Yeah, that's true. Maybe, maybe Dean goes down and they look at it and go, oh, okay, if this were to happen in week four, shoot, we, we can't put two, we don't have two linebackers that we like enough to be out there, especially like these two, like Nicholas Morrow was supposed to be the guy that these two guys potentially could be. Not, not to say he can't be, but maybe they're not totally convinced of that uh, at this point in the summer. All right, let's get to the two players. My, when I saw Miles Jack, I'm just like, this is right down ZB's alley. Like, you know, decorated <laughs> yeah. college player, versatile. We could throw a little positionless football out there. Mm -hmm. uh, gr great athlete. Uh, I would assume of the two guys, 
he's the guy you're, you know, you think Eagles fans should be a little more excited about, right? Well, you know my type. I'll say that. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll wear this on the chin as well in that I, I did look it up. I, I put into, into the Twitter search field yesterday um, uh, my handle and Miles Jack. And I found from a radio interview in 2016, uh, I was quoted on radio as saying Miles Jack's the best player in the draft. So, <laughs> um, so clearly I have a type. Uh, now that said, there's, there's what, seven year sample size here, or six year sample size of, of seeing him play. And early in his career in Jacksonville, he was, he was legitimately good. That's, that's why he got a $57 million contract. He, he has not been the same player these past two years. You can kind of, Absolve him of the Urban Meyer year, not of the Pittsburgh year last year. Uh, yeah. So there's there's a reason why he was still on the street, but there is talent there. In well, the, well, there is the athletic the, uh, the athletic traits certainly um, to be a productive off ball linebacker, especially if the defensive line is playing the way you want it to be. I think Zach Cunningham probably has more theoretical appeal in terms of uh, he's he's bigger, he's longer. I mean, I think when he came out of Vandy. He was measured at 34-plus-inch arms. And I didn't remember that at all, ZB. When I was just preparing for this, I was like, what? You know, I looked up the mock draftable spider chart. 6'3", 234 with 34-and-3-inch yeah. arms. For, uh, so if you're, if you're not a sicko and are just like, how do you, you need to contextualize that? I don't go around measuring uh, people's arms. That's, that's like long for like an, that's like for yeah. an offensive tackle. That's like, you know, above average uh, arm lengths. Yeah, those measurables uh, surprised me and, and were a little bit of a reminder that I, I'd forgotten about. Now, even with that, that length, my understanding, and I'll, I'll defer to you on, on this, but, um, but he, he was never a, an outstanding pass defender, but he's been a prolific yeah. tackler. Uh, yeah. and, and so that's what he was at, at Vandy. That's what he was with the Texans. It was a bit of a surprise when the Texans cut him. Again, it was a, a messed up situation there in, in Houston. He catches on with Tennessee. M- he missed most of last year with an injury. So it's a similar situation. You're, you're going based on name appeal. Both these guys are in their mid-20s. It's not like signing, or their late 20s, rather. It's not like signing someone who's 34 years old. But, there are, but there's injury history with both of them. In Miles Jack's case, that injury history has, follow, has followed him since UCLA. It's the reason why he slipped to the second round. But he, he hasn't been you know, like an Iron Man, but he hasn't been so injury-prone that, that, that he misses half the games every year. So some of that might be, you know, I was reading an old uh, Jeremiah Trotter story the other day where he was taking a physical in Cincinnati and he's like, don't even give me the MRI. I'm, 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 I'm going to fail it, but, <laughs> but, uh, look Jeez. at the tape. That's that, that's all you need to know. Yeah. 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 I was surprised too with Jack. Like I said, it started 95 games. He started 13 games last year. He really hasn't missed a lot of time in his career. Now he was playing with a groin injury, uh, last year. So we kind of played, played through that. So that's something that doesn't get factored in. Uh, with games played, but like you mentioned, 28 years old, um, you know, 36th overall pick in 2016. What's interesting is he signed like a legit deal last off season with the Steelers. Jaguars mm-hmm. released him. Steelers signed. He signed a two year, $16 million deal with the Steelers. Like that, that's what, what did TJ Edwards, I think got less than that, uh, on the open market. This past offseason. So like that's uh that's a team saying we really like this player. Uh he only makes eight million of that and then gets released after one season and the Steelers totally, you know, reshape 
their inside linebacker group. So they obviously weren't thrilled with the way he played last year and thought that they could get more for less money for, for less money there, but has had a hundred plus tackles in three straight seasons. How about this? Last three seasons, Zach, 353 tackles ranks 10th in the entire mm. NFL. So um, yeah, he has been uh, a productive player, has missed more than two games just once in his entire career. So uh, you're right there. Like the injury, sometimes the injury label follows the guy. And I'm not saying that's a non-factor because that's probably as affected his play and he's, and he's fought through stuff, no doubt about it. But just in terms of, is he on the field or is he not on the field? Most of the time he's been on the field there. So um, I think it's a pretty, I think, like you said, it's a word. There's no like what are they doing here with these signings? I mean, there's no real, I, I, we haven't seen the exact money. I doubt it's big time money. I would imagine that uh, there's some upside in terms of maybe you get a competent starter and the downside is going to be relatively minimal given that these guys are on the street and didn't have jobs uh, on August 6th. Like they, they, there was not huge demand for them. 